we can be instructed by it. For we believe it's very profitable in every way. Help us now to be diligent hearers as we focus on what you have for us today. And then may we apply it with passion and conviction as those who have been changed by it. We pray this in the kind name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. We are in our home stretch of our study of 1 Thessalonians, Paul's first letter to the Thessalonian church. And it's hard to believe this is our 19th sermon in this letter. We have 16 verses left, and I'm not going to teach through all of them today. We're probably going to break that up into two more sermons or three more sermons uh, in our, our next times together in this letter. Your Bible, it may have a heading over this section. In the ESV, it says, Final Instructions and Benediction. So after three chapters of encouragement and thanksgiving and high fives and a lot of celebration for this young church, Paul gets into some exhortations, some teaching, and some imperatives. And we spent a good bit of time in chapter 4 and in chapter 5. And he gets into some key issues there in chapter 4 and chapter 5, dealing with uh, love, purity, death, um, work, <laughs> the biggest themes of life, right? There's nothing new under the sun. And then Paul finishes in this section, verses 12 through 28, with a blitz of exhortations. A whole, he just rattles them off. And, and Paul had some basic instructions, as I like to call them, that he taught all the churches that he planted and he ministered to. And this was common for Paul. After, after greeting and after teaching, he will get into a body of instruction that he kind of has, that he pulls from, and he will share to all the churches. And here we have this rapid-fire group of imperatives. And he does this. And sometimes even in his pastoral epistles to Timothy, He'll even be like, just rapid fire to Timothy. He's like, oh, and uh, grab my coat the next time you come. And, hey, and uh, drink a little wine for your stomach aches. It's just like he's finishing his thoughts. He's putting all his, his thoughts together. And then he kind of just like rapid fire, kind of like as he's bringing the plane in for a landing. So while it wasn't at the way end of Romans, the parallel passage to this section here, is in, in Romans chapter 12. There's a whole section, and he repeats much of the same content in the parallel passage. And I think some of you were checking that out in the devotional this week. But as Paul draws the letter to a close, he starts with the tone of a respectful request. Look at that in verse 12. He says, I ask you, I ask you, brothers... And the brothers alerts us that this is written to the whole church. This was a, a, a church mostly of Greeks, right? Thessalonica is in, was in ancient Greece, and it's still, I think it's still a place today. But Paul, the former Pharisee, the Hebrew of Hebrews, from the tribe of Benjamin, he's addressing these Greeks as brothers. These former pagans are now a brother with Paul. 
And we all know Paul's story. He was a very unlikely convert. He was persecuting the church. And then he became one of the most influential apostles in the history of the church. And he wrote most of the New Testament. And he did that after Jesus met him on the road and he gave him new life. That's basically what happened. And he ended up being one of the most influential human instruments that God has used in the building of his church. And these Thessalonian Christians, it says, that Paul is addressing in chapter 1. Remember, these were the ones that turned away from idols to serve the living and the true God. They turned away from that which isn't God to that which is the true God. And he, he blessed them and he was so thankful for their work of faith and their labor of love and their steadfastness in hope. And he just celebrated them. And he said there, this, that, that triad of Christian virtue, faith, hope, and love, one of those part of that body of work that Paul loves to come back to, right? He's just repeating and reminding them again and again, this is what you're after. I'm so happy to see it. Keep after it. And it's because of the new life, the new life that was imparted to you, Thessalonians, the new life, the resurrection life of Christ that came to you, it came to me, and guess what? Now we're family. I could talk to you like brothers. And they were part of this kingdom community who were brought together by the common spirit. The common spirit, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And he not only brought the Thessalonians together with Paul 2,000 years ago or so, but he brought us together. He brings us together. And the same Spirit not only brings us together, if you're in Christ, but He not only brings us together, but He shapes us together. He shapes us individually, and He shapes us as a community. So that we're conformed to the standard of the kingdom that Jesus ushered in. A kingdom of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. We're not to be pressed into the mold of this world, as J.B. Phillips says in his uh, Romans 12.2, his translation of Romans 12.2. We're not to be pressed into the mold and the form of this world, but we are pressing forward in the good news of the victory of all that God has accomplished for us in Christ through the Spirit. Now, I'm not going to ask you to look around because you know what this church is made of in terms of uh, earth suits. But have you ever seen the different shades of brown in this church? We got Indians, we got Chinese, we got DR, PR, Germans, Dutch, we got Italians, Africans, Islanders. The brown at bread is beautiful. Amen? Amen? Ken Ham tweeted last week, uh, that we really shouldn't say black and white. Because, you know, I'm not white, and Thomas isn't black, okay? Because we're all different shades of brown. That's really what it comes to. And we don't want to play into the naturalist worldviews of evolution and Marxist division. Amen? Amen? Nobody's black and nobody's white. We're all different shades of brown. And the variety of melanin was put into... In, into the human race by our Creator. There's only one race. 
And then from Noah, he had three boys, and then Noah's wife, and then the three boys had each had a wife. So there's four women and four dudes, but the dudes all had the same genetics. But then from there, we have all of the all of the genome that adapts into what we have today. All the nations and cultures on the earth. That's the biblical way to look at race and the differences that we have in this room. The alternative is completely ridiculous. Try chasing that rabbit down. It's hilarious. But what could possibly bring us together, this group of people? And you add the, you add the group from Carney too, and you get more flavors in the uh, 31 Baskin-Robbins uh, mix. What could bring us together, this ragtag, ragmuffin band of people here in this room? It defies explanation that all of you are family. Yes, we're spiritual family. And we need each other to grow in relationships. It's not just we're Lone Ranger Christians. I'm just solo. I'm in this thing and I'm going to live for God. PB and J, prayer, Bible, and Jesus. I'm going to do it on my own. Now, you better be disciplined. You better be disciplined in your personal basics, the personal fundamentals of growth. There's personal disciplines of the Christian life. You need to be praying and reading and spending time in in, in communion with God. Those are the basics. But the great majority of the commands that we see in Scripture and the exhortations in the New Testament, especially the ones that we're going to look at today, are given to us in the context of Christian community. These verbs can't be done without each other. they, They don't make sense. We need each other to grow. And in our text today, we have nine exhortations that we're going to be looking at. I broke it down into five different points. Church actions. Uh, You can see that in your handout if you want to follow along. And number three, uh, it's it's got all, I put all the verbs in that one. So he packed a lot in that verse, Paul did. Actually, the guy, as you know, the, the numbering and the chapter verse and numbering, that wasn't inspired. So it's all in one, uh, but we're going to take that as one point. Um, As a reminder, and I probably don't need to remind you of this because you hear this often, uh, we don't do these things. We're not called to these imperatives, and uh, we don't do them so that we can please God and somehow attain to being a Christian and get his favor. These things are only possible and to even be aspired to because we have already been made Christians by the Spirit. This is not a moralistic sermon that I'm going to give you here today. Be nice to each other. (laughs) That's it in a nutshell. Be nice to each other. Just moralism. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. I'm not giving you that. These are indicatives there, we, we have the indicatives of what's true of us, and out of that, there are imperatives, what we're supposed to do. Because of who you are and your new identity in Christ, now go forth and do this. 
So every time you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit today with these verbs, it should drive you to a posture of, oh Lord, I need help. (laughs) I need your help. I can't do this on my own. I'm completely incapable. I don't have the reserves. I don't have the resources. I need you. And the Lord goes, got him right where I want him. Got her right where I want her. Independence on the Spirit. And that's a great place to be. Lord, help me. That's a good default prayer, you know? No matter where you are. Lord, help. <laughs> so church, uh, church action number one. And this may sound a little familiar, because, and, and not just because we read it 10 minutes ago, but Pastor Joe read this text last week. In Hebrews 13, in in his uh, sermon on Hebrews 13. So church action number one. Respect and esteem your leaders. We're told to respect and esteem in love those of us who are over us in the Lord. So who's that? Well, it doesn't say elders here, but we know that Paul appointed elders wherever he went, and we don't know, some of the commentators say he didn't, he didn't appoint them yet, and Timothy had to go back. But we know that those who are over us in the Lord are elders. They're shepherds. They're pastors. They're overseers. It comes from the same Greek word we learned last week. So when this is, they're, they're used interchangeably. And it says that we're supposed to respect them and esteem our elders in love. Now, the King James actually... It has it the best, I think, compared to, you know, when I look at the original, it says, to know them that labor. To know our, to know those that labor. Which captures, I think, the meaning really well, especially when you consider how New Testament body life was. It was so, everybody was up into each other's stuff. His life was pretty concentrated and, and uh, to get, there's a lot of togetherness. And it's in those situations where a lot more is caught than taught, and people lived in very close proximity. And it was, it's in those situations you really need to know who these people are that are leading you. You've got to know them. And to esteem them very highly in love, it says. To esteem them highly because of their work. So hold these guys, these men, these people who labor on our behalf. Hold these guys in great love and respect and do this exceedingly and abundantly. Paul's saying this in a nutshell. Church, you need to get to know your elders and know all the work they're going through to shepherd souls. The stuff you see and the stuff you don't see behind the scenes. Respect them appreciate them, and love them because they're given as a gift to the church, Ephesians 4 says. Elders are given to the church as a gift to the church. As a church, we're supposed to know their sermons. You should be able to rattle off, oh yeah, I remember that line from that sermon. We're supposed to know their exhortations. We're supposed to know what they think about the cultural pitfalls and the ditches on both sides of the road. We should know what those are and what our elders think are danger zones. 
We should know what's important to each of them as they shepherd us. Because as I said, they're given to the church. They're given to the body. And in these two verses, we have, in verse 12 and 13, we have uh, a we do, they do. Okay? That's the way I like to put it. Uh, There's some basic responsibilities for the members, and then there's some basic responsibilities for the elders. For the, for the members, for us, there's, that's the we do. Um, we're told to know, we're told to respect, we're told to appreciate, we're told to esteem, we're told to love our elders. And it's not just because they serve in a position of authority, not because they have the title of pastor, but because of their work amongst us. And then the they do, what is, what is the uh, job of the, of the elders? Well, it's to, to labor, to govern, to admonish. That just comes right out of the text. But in other places in Scripture, remember we take all of Scripture, we don't just take one verse here and one verse there, but all of, when we look at all of Scripture, elders' job is to lead and feed and protect and correct. And they all rhyme, I think. But that's a key part of what pastors are given to. They're given to do that and to pray and to equip us. They're, they're given to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. It's not, oh, there's the pastor. He does the work of the ministry. And I'm over here just doing my old thing as a whatever. No, <laughs> we are all called to be a part of this ministry. Now, pastors have big jobs. And we are to know them and love them and esteem them and respect them for their labors on our behalf. And this word for labor, it brings out the meaning of of great toil and energy exerted to the point of exhaustion. And they are to lead and speak and, and live lives worthy of imitation. They're supposed to lead and live exuberant, joyful lives where the life of Christ and the love of Christ and the love for their sheep overflows. And they're supposed to do that as they watch over souls, as we heard last week. The shepherd isn't supposed to, to just bark out orders. Hey, get, you know, get over here uh, and then go hide. You know? And I'm so glad we don't have a, uh, shepherds that, that hide from us. And I've heard of shepherds that do that. They don't like people. They just like to make a message and then give that 45-minute message and then hide away for 30 hours a week. That's not what shepherds are supposed to do. I've heard about that. You know, hey, sheep, you know, eat over there. You know, be nice to each other. Share. Uh, watch out for the wolf. Uh, see you later. I'm out of here. There's shepherds like that in the world. And their sheep are in danger. And that's sad. The shepherds are supposed to be among us. And that's what, it, that's what they are. They're supposed to smell a little bit like the sheep. They're around the sheep all the time. Spend a lot of time with the sheep. They work hard. They toil. They pray. They prepare. They teach. They remind. And they remind. And then they remind. Did I... Say, they remind. That's a big part of your job. Is to remind us, because you're forgetful. (laughs) They're hospitable. They equip us for the work. And they're over us. Which means that they're under shepherds, under the great shepherd. 
So there's, this is, they're building Christ's church. It's not Eli's church and Abraham's church and Joe's church and Damien's church. No, it's Christ's church, and they're the under-shepherds making sure that we're well-fed and we're cared for and we don't get off the cliff and we don't eat the bad stuff over there and we play nice together in the pen. Another they do here, I'll just bring attention to it, uh, for the elders is uh, they admonish, it says here. They admonish us. This is a great word in the, in the original, nuthateo. You may have heard uh, nuthetic counseling. Uh, that's where we get that from. And this word admonish, uh, we're going to see it again in the next verse, but it means to correct. It means to provoke without embittering. So you're kind of poking, you're kind of getting to some important things which can be very sensitive, but you're doing it in a loving way, warning, confronting people out of deep concern in order to see them make changes that God requires for their growth. This is what pastors do. That's also what we do. We're going to be, I'm going to show you in just a minute. We're called to this too. As parents, that's what we want to do with our, with our children, right? And it says this is one of the things elders do, something that we all are to do. And it's easy, but oh man, he screwed up for the 97th time. You know what? I don't even want to deal with it. I don't want to say anything. And I could see the tendency to that. But a pastor that loves, a parent that loves, a church member that loves admonishes, confronts, corrects. If you say nothing, you're saying something. That it's okay to keep doing that. It's okay for that to keep taking place. I'm just going to ignore it. But you need to confront it. And the motivation is for positive change and growth. And we're supposed to, there's a certain way to do that and there's a certain way not to do that. We could talk more about that in just a bit. So let's go church action number two. So first one, respect and esteem your leaders. Second one, pursue peace. The end of verse 13 says, be at peace among yourselves. Now, there's some commentators that say this be at peace, it should, be, it should stay with verse 13 and stay connected to the part about respecting and loving and knowing your leaders. And then there's the part, there's some people that know it's, it, it kind of is right in the middle and it can be, it's a, it's a general thing. It's more about being at peace is, it could be applied to the leaders and then it could be applied, applied to the body life exhortations, which we're going to see. But let's just say, um, I think it <clears throat> makes sense in many ways that it stays with verse 13 because one of the best ways that we can love and that we can respect and we could esteem our leaders is not to create messes and controversies that they're going to have to clean up. So be at peace with each other and that respects and loves and esteems our elders' time. Now, they're going to be there to help us when we need it. But let's not, let's not create more mess than they need. So we love well, we, we follow well, we are called to walk worthy in humility. Um, Ephesians 4 says to maintain unity and peace. Uh, 
and 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 this is all you know part of this this walking worthy. That's the theme of First Thessalonians. If you had to put First Thessalonians in one sentence, it's walk worthy before God in light of His coming. That's it in a nutshell, and that's that's what Paul's getting at here. That's the charge. Walk worthy is to walk in love, to walk in peace, to pursue peace. Now, if the, if the elders do their job right, they're going to be admonishing people. And that could cause people to get, their, to get out of alignment. People don't like to be admonished. And it's not just the elders, because we can all admonish. If someone admonishes you, I'm just going to throw this example out there. Let's say you're a sister who came out of the world and you, you, you dressed like the world and you provocatively accentuated certain parts of your body that's not your face. Um, and a brother or sister comes to you in love and admonishes you about dressing more modestly. I could almost guarantee you, and I've seen this movie before, that um, you're going to be tempted to not like them or not talk to that person. That's just the way it is. Someone calls you out, even if they do it with the right spirit, um, we have the tendency to just go, eh, you know. And there's disharmony there that starts to breed the embers of disharmony. Who does she think she is coming to me, telling me about that? You know. But the spiritual response, even if you don't think, even if you don't think that the person is saying something that's um, in alignment with you, what, even if you don't think that what they're saying is true, you could, as a brother or sister, getting confronted by another brother or sister, thank you. I'm going to take that on board. I uh, thank you for having the courage to come tell me about that. Um, I'm going to pray about that. Pursue peace. Real basic body life principle. Peace that's, is one of the things that should mark Christians. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit. If the Holy Spirit's working on you on the inside, one of the things that should come out is peace on the outside. And it's difficult. We live in one of the noisiest, most divided, most agitated cultures in human history. And we're hit on all sides by everything that wars against our peace. We live in a grievance culture. I don't know if you know what that is. Where everybody's got a problem with everybody. Everybody's seeking to divide and destroy. And there's a lot of discontentment. You're not as handsome. You're not as pretty. You deserve this. It's his fault. It's her fault. And there's many reasons to get rifts in a body. Did you know how they educate their kids? Did you know who they voted for? And, oh, she's very hurt, or he's disappointed that nobody's... Did, and there's a lot, of, and, and there's fumers, and then there's stuffers, and in the body life, there's a lot of different reasons for us to get bent out of shape. And Satan wants us to be bitter and divided. That's how he likes us. That's how he likes this culture to be. But we're called to pursue peace. 
It's okay to have preferences and differences and opinions, but just be prepared and to justify and make a case if someone admonishes you about an issue that you think is true, and you say, oh, you know, I, I, okay, I'm listening to you, and be open. We don't buy into the, the world's understanding of, oh, that's, well, this is my truth. You know, this is, this is true for me, so it's my truth, and you can have your truth. <laughs> you ever hear that? Yes. Yeah, it's like, yeah, we've, there is no my truth. We, there's a word for that, it's called an opinion, okay? You have opinions, and then there's the truth. And we need to, we need to hold those open-handed things, those things that may be of opinion and, and, and of conviction. We can hold those lightly. And we don't have to war against each other on those, on those issues. Now, close-handed issues, you say Jesus isn't God, you know, those are fighting words around here, right? But it's not okay to be bitter and miserable and divided. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Romans 12, 18. As much as it depends on you, be at peace with each other. There was a guy in China, I don't know why, but he just, when I uh, lived there for five years, and, and my wife can attest to it, there was a guy, he just didn't like me. And I usually don't have people that don't like me. This guy hated me. Every time I saw him, I said hello, he didn't like me. And I didn't like that. And finally, um, I got to the point where I, I said, hey, can I just talk to you? Um, and he, um, he was from another country, but his English was really good. And then finally, he's just like, yeah, you did this and you did that. And I'm like, I did nothing of the sort. But I can understand why you wouldn't like me if that was true. And we kind of reconcile it. And he wasn't even a believer. But it was just someone who just was dead set against, uh, dead set against me. But I, I tried to follow Romans twelve eighteen. As much as it depends on you, be at peace. So you do your part. Now he could have said, you know, get lost. I don't even want to talk to you. But you do your part. Even when it's everyone is ready to throw down at the hoedown and nobody wants peace, you be the peacemaker. And it's not, oh, you know what, I'm not going to engage, you know, like, I, I, me and her, we don't get along, you know. I'm not going to engage them. I'm just going to let sleeping dogs lie in the church. I'm not going to deal with her. Just going to not talk to her. It always ends up ugly every time I talk to her. Amen. That's what pagans do. We do the opposite. Amen. We flip the rock over, and then we see the squiggly, scary, ugly things under the rock, and we deal with them. And we try to do the best we can to do good and to love those in the church, especially, and to pursue peace. We don't do just, oh, you know, I'm not talking to her. No, we deal with things. And it's hard. You may need some help. And you know what the culprit is there. The culprit that keeps us from doing the right thing there is that old nasty me monster, as the great Brian Regan says. Beware the me monster. The pride monster. Me, myself, and I. Now that's scary. 
That's the scary monster. And then what happens? When the me monster comes out, then you start, you know, crossfire, you're hitting everybody. You get a mess on the hand, you get, and you make a real big mess for the elders. And then the elders get heavy-handed, and they start slapping people around, which isn't the right way to do it. And they get heavy-handed, and I'm not saying that's what happens here at this church, but we've, we've, we know about places like that, where there's just, it's easier just to do this from the top. And everybody kind of, you know, does, but we're, it's body life. We're supposed to live together in harmony, pursuing peace. We strive for unity. We strive for peace. Let's go to the next one. Church action number three. We discern and minister accordingly. There's so much here. Verse 14. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So much in one verse. Now, the key thing here in body life in the working out of Christian community, and this is aimed at everyone, uh, not just the leaders. We don't want to be hard all the time, and we don't want to be too soft all the time. There's a time to be hard and admonish, and there's a time to encourage and to help. And with everybody, what does it say? Be patient. So there's a time to admonish, there's a time to support and encourage and help, but with everybody, be patient. We need to have discernment and wisdom so we don't get those verbs jumbled up when we work with each other, when we minister to each other. Let's take one by one. I, I'm going to unpack each one. Admonish the idle. So this word for idle, it's a military term and it means to be out of step. I think of like those guys in North Korea, those goose steppers, you know what I'm talking about? And their legs, just picture one guy that's just completely out of, out of step with everybody else. That's kind of the idea. You're not obeying the orders at you know, a higher level, but you're not, you're, 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 you're not taking in what you're supposed to be taking in. You're, you're out of sync. That's one kind of understanding. You're lazy. You're loafing. It's an, it, it's an undisciplined life. You're not focused. You're apathetic. You're not getting traction. You're not getting stuff done. Your life's out of order. And Paul commands the church, admonish those people. And it's the same word from before, nuthateo, which is a very strong word. Confront those people. Challenge them. Counsel them with the idea of growth. Now, if, 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 if there's a guy and he can't work because he's sick or he's injured, we should try to help those people. That's, that's not what it's getting at. But if we're talking about able-bodied people who don't want to work, they just want to stay in their house and play video games and surf the internet all the time, that guy needs to be admonished and confronted with reality. And sadly, we have an epidemic in our country and in the West overall of parents that enable their adult children. And this is very unloving. I heard just firsthand the other week from, a, from someone about a 19-year-old man that's depressed. And he sits in his room all day in the dark playing video games. Now, not surprisingly, the guy didn't have a dad, doesn't have a dad in the picture. 
Um, but the mom enables this guy to just, he, she buys him pizza and, and wings, and, and it just enables him to live this life of playing video games and surfing the internet. And it seems kind on the surface, but it's hatred manifest to just let that behavior continue. Paul says, if you don't work, you don't eat. Earlier in chapter 4, remember Paul charged the church to work with their hands. Don't be dependent on anyone. Remember that? We went through that. We had a whole sermon on that. And this isn't just a punch in the arm or a kick in the pants. But it's a warning with a heart that desires restoration. That desires to restore the right spirit of love and gentleness, as it says in Galatians 6. Now, if someone's outside of the kingdom, then it's, a, then it's an evangelistic conversation. They're, they're, they're lost, and you've got to know where to grab it, right? And that takes wisdom and discernment as well. But we should be willing and able to not only give that kind of admonishment, but also to receive that. And that's, that's tough, as I said. The second grouping here, we're, we're told to encourage the faint-hearted. These are people who are discouraged. They're people who are wounded. They're broken. They're depressed. And the language here in the Greek is of a runner who doesn't have the motivation to finish the race. These people don't need a punch in the arm. They need an arm to come around them. And it takes wisdom and discernment to know. They need encouragement. They need their hope roused up. They need a brother or sister to come along and cheer them up. Do you have someone like that in your life who can help you be cheered up and see the perspective? I think we could all use a few more people like that in our lives. Amen? It starts by being the change you want to see, though. You want that in your life? You be that for somebody. When a brother or sister is down, they feel like they got nothing left in the tank, it's sometimes helpful just to be there for them. Right? Just to be there. Sometimes it's, it's just listening. Sometimes it's that appropriate human touch to, to be there or that encouraging word. Perspective. I love the Pastor Bill Poss line. I've mentioned it before. He says it in his most endearing Jersey City accent. He says, what are you so upset about? That you're going to heaven or that your sins are forgiven? <laughs> Perspective. I think I used that on a few of you before. Perspective is critical. We're to comfort those who are down. And these Thessalonians, they were being persecuted. Some of them may have even died. They lost loved ones. They weren't in a happy, clappy mood. They need some love. They need some encouragement. And they were told to be there for one another and to encourage those who are down, who are faint-hearted. Third, help the weak. The word here can mean physical weakness. It can mean emotional weakness. It can mean weakness of conscience. It can mean spiritual weakness, immaturity. It's a, it's a broad word. And maybe they, somebody was struggling with a particular sin, or immature area immaturity, or the, they just didn't have the strength to fight that sin. For these people, 
What are we supposed to do? What does it say? What does the text say for those people? Help them. To hold firmly, the original language is trying to bring out. To strengthen. To be loyal to them in a tough time to say, Sister, my sister in the Lord, I'm here to support you. I'm here to hold you up. And then it says to be patient with them all. All of the admonishing and encouraging and helping, right? Admonish, encourage, help. All of that is to be done with patience. Patience is a fruit of the Spirit, and it's a necessary ingredient for a growing and loving community. You can't grow in love without patience. I love this word in the original, macrothermeo. You hear that word, thermeo, thermal? We get temperature, like the thermal. You, 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 you heard that word in there, and it, it means uh, takes time to get hot. Long fused on the bomb. <laughs> it takes some time. And that's what it feels like. Sometimes I'm in traffic. I feel like I'm just ready to explode. But we're supposed to have a long fuse. Because we trust the God who orchestrates all things after the counsel of his will. All things are from him, through him, and to him. To him be the glory forever. Do we believe that? That we should be patient. I'm preaching to myself here. But everything in our culture trains us to be impatient in our microwave, instant gratification culture. I don't need to remind you. Change takes time. Very few people and very few situations change in an instant. That's life. Teenagers, your little brother or your little sister is not going to be Jesus the second overnight. And neither are you. And so often we're so busy and we're so rushed and we're so selfish. Uh, we, we need patience. We need wisdom. We need that spiritual discernment to slow down and ask for guidance. Like I said before, Lord, I need your help. How do I handle this? What do I do here? That's a good prayer. It's a good default prayer. Lord, I need, to, I need your help to know where this guy is right now. What's the state of this brother or sister that I'm seeking to minister to? I don't want to kick this guy when he's down. And I don't want to encourage him or hug him if he's just being a lazy slug. I need to know what to do. Give me your wisdom. Give me your discernment. And you're going to make mistakes. You're going to make mistakes. I've probably punched some guys in the arm when I should have gave him a hug. You probably have to. You learn, and you grow, and you love, and you become more aware of your own selfishness so that the next time you're able to minister better. Which scriptures should I go to the next time I'm in that situation? That's why God gave us pens, brothers and sisters, so you can write that stuff down, because you're going to forget. Change takes time. Sanctification is a community project. You may have heard from one of the Trip brothers. Forget which one. Probably the one with the mustache. 
Change takes a lot of work. And it's good to remind ourselves, and I'm reminding you now, that when you get converted, you aren't cured instantly of all of your bad habits and your vices and your bents and your tendencies. You're not all of a sudden cured and I'm ready. Okay, I'm, I'm here for service. No, you got to work a lot of that stuff out. And we're all a work in progress. And you have people in your life that are difficult. And guess what? You're probably one of those difficult people for somebody too. Oh no, not me. Not me. Yeah, you. You're a work in progress. And if we're honest with ourselves, we all have times, sometimes more than others, where we're struggling, where we're fighting. And we have times where we feel idle and out of gear. We feel faint-hearted and depressed. We feel weak and unmotivated. So this verse necessitates that we know ourselves and our triggers, but we also know each other and we're aware of the needs of the body. Who's prone to melancholy? I had a boss once, he told a story about his, his wife. He came home one day and he just lost a couple of bids, he lost a couple of jobs, and he's telling her, and he's kind of downcast, he's a little faint-hearted. And his wife, whose English isn't her first language, she says, why are you so cauliflower? <laughs> and he said, I'm not anymore. <laughs> not after that. We need to know each other. And we don't bring a one-size-fits-all canned approach to our issues. This is why we need body life. We need church community in action so that we can discern and minister accordingly with wisdom. Lastly, church uh, action four and five. You know what? I'm going to put these together. Um, we're called to re resist revenge and always seek to do good. Resist revenge and always seek to do good. Look at verse 15. See that no one repays evil, anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Easier read than done, right? <laughs> Vengeance is the opposite of patient love. When someone hurts you, you want to get them back. And it's, it's very natural to our species. <laughs> we don't have to be taught to hit back. It's in the programming. It's in the hard wiring. Any parents out there that can testify to this? Amen, yes. I know you're smelling what I'm stepping in. If you have kids, you've seen this, and this is like on loop at my house. Did you punch your brother? Are you supposed to punch your brother? No, but he punched me. Say it. First, and what am I going to say? Well, in that case, it's okay. If he punched you, then you could punch him. Now you're even. No, that's not the way we do it. But that's natural. And it sells. You guys know Hollywood pumps this into us. That's why it's good to kind of not watch their junk. But... 
I did see a couple clips years ago about this movie called The Equalizer, Denzel Washington, and it feels so good when he gets back at bad people. Like, they did this and he does that. There's something in us. Settle in the score. Level the playing field. It's normal to like that stuff in our natural state. Now, evil hits everyone in this fallen world. It lands on Christians too. We're not immune to having evil done to us. But the difference isn't that we escape the evil, that it doesn't happen to us or people that we love, but the difference is that our response is supposed to be different. The majority of the time, we can't control what happens to us, but we can control, by God's grace, through His Spirit, our response. That is within our control. Are you going to respond with evil for evil? Or are you going to respond with good to all? Which will it be? God's saying to the whole church, and this is pretty interesting, the grammar here, it's, it's bringing out, uh, see to it, church, that no one in the church takes revenge. It's on everybody to make sure it doesn't happen. Hold each other back from doing the natural thing. It's a... It's an imperative to the whole church because it reflects on the whole church. Don't return evil for evil, sin for sin. Don't do what's natural. Don't do justice. That's my job, God says. Choose love, choose kindness, choose goodness instead. And this is a, a complete 180 to your natural tendency, to the natural way that we know doesn't work. Just turn on the news at night and all you see is story after story of how evil for evil doesn't work. It just makes more mess. It's the way to death. There's a lot of it in this world. And we sin against each other. We sin against people in the church. We sin against people in our natural families. And we're called, when that happens, to respond as Christians, as those who have the Holy Spirit and who bear the fruit of the Spirit, one of which is goodness. That's a third one today, fruit of the Spirit. We're going to talk about more later, kids, and bold kids. Peace, patience, goodness. These are fruit of the Spirit that the Spirit bears out. From the good root comes the good fruit. We are not going to do what is natural. The natural thing is evil for evil. That's the natural thing. We're not doing natural because we have been changed by the supernatural. Amen? Natural, evil for evil. Life for a leg. Eye for an eyelash. That's what's natural. God had to put eye for an eye, just so there wasn't the, the over the top, right? Natural is, you did this to me, now I'm going to really do that to you. But we're called to forgive, to forbear, to be committed to do good, good to people in their temporal sense, physically, and also to the, their eternal good, spiritually. You've been changed by God, and you know God. And when you have the peace that God gives, you can resist revenge. I have here in your notes. 
We can resist revenge. For whatever wrongs are done to you, you don't need to get even because you live under the reign of the living God who got even with Christ in your place. Christ took the penalty. Christ took the punishment. He propitiated the wrath. He took away the wrath. He absorbed the wrath that was due you. Jesus took that. Say, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. But I I just want to be about his business. I heard someone say that to me once. Vengeance is, God says vengeance is his, but I like to be about God's business. I like to be about business of vengeance too. No, this one he's got all to himself. Okay? He handles justice by himself. He brings perfect justice. Perfect justice will be done either in hell forever, where his holy wrath will burn against sin, or it will be handled on the cross where, where his wrath against evil was propitiated perfectly for all those that are his. Think about that for a moment. If you're in Christ, God doesn't get even with you. And oh, does he have a case against you. He never repays evil for evil. But as perfectly modeled in Christ, he gave us good when we deserved the opposite. That's the gospel. That's the great exchange. He takes our sin and he gives us his goodness. He takes the penalty that we deserve. He absorbs all of the wrath and then he gives us all of his goodness. Christ pursued to his own death what was good for us. And ultimately what was good for him because that was part of the plan to win the bride and he will receive the full reward of his suffering just thought of revelation 5 and 6 pastor eli's going through that you know and all the praise of the whole world to christ he is worthy because he did this great work and he did the opposite of what is natural the only one who could do it the fully god fully man one that was sent to perform this reconciliation. And when we as a church choose to do good to one another and to everyone, that's those in the church and those outside the church, here's what happens. The goodness of God, the grace of God, the kindness of God, the love of God, it can't be contained. And then what happens? It's too powerful. So it it spills out of the Christian community and it spills the banks. And this new life that's happening in our community, it spills out and then the world is changed by the grace and the power that God is working in the church. That's the idea. And that's a little foretaste of heaven. And it starts to run out into the lost world. And and, and, and people that aren't, in the church, they go, what's that? What is that? That's not normal. That's not natural. <laughs> Pursuing peace, respecting authority, loving your leaders, discerning and wise action with each other, and, and um, not repaying evil for evil, but giving good? Are you kidding? To your enemies? 
And that's only possible when the gospel has changed you, given you a new heart, given you the new eyes to behold the kingdom of righteousness, joy, and peace in the Spirit. We need to get back to the basics. That's the title of this message. These are basics. These are basic things at the end of the letter. Paul's just ramming them in there. Hey, hey, remember this. These are the basics. Let's get back to the basics. Let's trust the process of God working and advancing his kingdom in this world. What is he doing? He's refreshing. He's renewing. He's restoring. He's reconciling all things in Christ. And he has a great, great part in that plan to use us, his church, to be a part of that process. Let's trust that he who began the good work in you and in us will carry that good work out to completion as we apply the good news of the gospel and display the fruit of the gospel in the way that we respect and esteem our leaders, in the way that we pursue peace with one another, in the way that we discern and minister to one another in the body, and in the way that we resist revenge and seek to do good. This message, it's an urging. It's an exhortation. It's a challenge. It's an encouragement, I hope, for more love, for more peace, for more patience, for more goodness in our body. And I'll finish by echoing the words that we devoted a sermon to in 1 Thessalonians 4, where Paul says, we see, these happen- we see these things happening, brothers and sisters. We see them happening. You're doing it. Let's do it more and more. Amen? Amen. We're going to have uh, Brother lead us in prayer, in reflection, and confession as we reflect on that sermon and as we prepare for the upcoming Lord's Table.